All right, listeners, let's start with a little mindfulness exercise. Let's see if my podcast voice also works for a mindfulness voice. Take a deep breath in with me for five seconds. One, two, three, four, five, and out. One, two, three, four, five. Now take another deep breath and imagine you're filling your lungs with crisp mountain air. Continue breathing, my sweet friends, and find yourself on the edge of a vast snow-covered meadow, surrounded by towering evergreen trees. The air is still, and the world is hushed in a pre-dawn silence of peace. You're alone with your thoughts, standing on the precipice of an adventure. Now exhale slowly, releasing any tension you may be holding. Feel the weight of your body sink into the soft snow beneath you. Inhale again, drying in the pure essence of the snow-covered landscape around you. <laughs> I have to pause. No, 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 no. I like that. I like that. I like Is that, that you, good? I really like that. And also, I really like that you said, let's see if my podcast voice works for this. And then you didn't use your podcast voice. You sounded like a British, like, just... <laughs> Join me. <laughs> no. Join. I don't know where that came from. Guys, I'm so glad you're going to join us <laughs> with this podcast. This is the kind of content we're here for. <laughs> okay. Meditation exercise aside. I hope that set a good scene for today's topic. It's like I was there. <laughs> Outdoor recreation. <laughs> I wonder if I could have a future in guided meditations or if that was just creepy. No, no, no. I think you do. I think <laughs> I think maybe we should do a side podcast where that's all you do. You just kind maybe. Of, I vaguely British intonation old guy just guiding Slightly you creepy. to breathe in sort of the woods where everyone likes to be in the woods with an old man. Sleepy time with Ollie. Anyway, anyway, listeners, let's rein it back in. Sleepy time with Ollie. Today on Can of Worms, we're going to dive into the topic of outdoor recreation. Utah has a rich history of excellent outdoor recreation with world-class skiing across multiple resorts, five national parks, and approximately 71% of Utah being on public land. Utah is world-renowned. This topic also seemed appropriate because so many students at the U come here specifically to recreate. I mean, where else can you go to class in the morning and ski pow-pow in the afternoon? Pow-pow. That's what they call it here in Utah. The locals, if you come here to Utah, you know. <laughs> and if you say ski pow pow, you will be, you will, you'll you basically be, with loving arms. yeah, you'll, 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 they'll know that you're in. In today's episode, I want to discuss Salt Lake's history of recreation, explore why so many of us love to recreate, if Utah's increase of population has negative effects on recreation, and how both students at the U and Utah locals can get into popular activities safely and responsibly. Also, stay tuned because this episode features some exciting search and rescue stories. I'm Ollie, the host. I'm Cambria, the producer. And you're listening to Can of Worms. Stay with us. Okay, since this is a University of Utah sanctioned podcast, we're going to focus on recreation that people enjoy close to the U. So we're going to focus on the wonderful Wasatch Mountain Range. I grew up recreating in the Wasatch Mountains, going hiking in Mill Creek Canyon, 
and I learned to ski in Little and Big Cottonwood Canyon. But I don't know a whole lot about this area's history, so I wanted to talk about that for a second. First, I want to acknowledge that for many years, the Wasatch Mountains were occupied by Goshu, Shoshone, and Ute Native American tribes. These indigenous groups lived off the land for many years, mostly using the valley as seasonal camps and going into the Wasatch Range to follow game or fish. The word Wasatch itself is derived from the Ute language, which translates to low place in the mountains or mountain pass. Around the 1820s, trappers were told of abundant wildlife in the Wasatch Range and surrounding areas such as the Uintas. They were followed by Mormon settlers who arrived in 1847 and declared the Salt Lake Valley as the place to settle and build their community. Unfortunately, these Mormon settlers had a different relationship with the land than the indigenous groups that lived there for years before them. Mormon settlers needed wood to build their homes, so they established lumber mills along the Wasatch Front. The mining industry started to grow as well, which required timber to support mine shafts. Because of this, lots of the large trees in the area were cut down, specifically around mining areas like the town of Alta. Sheep grazing also became common in this time. The sheep would overgraze the area, destroying lots of the natural vegetation, which would then cause landslides and flooding. And the timber in the Wasatch was exploited so much that by the 1880s, timber had to be brought in from California's Sierra Range. Because of all these environmental harms caused by the first people settling in Salt Lake, by the 1900s, the Wasatch Range was in a state of disarray. The trees were gone, and the watershed was becoming constantly polluted. Because of this, in 1906, a presidential proclamation created the Wasatch National Forest to protect its resources. A few years later, a reforestation project began to preserve this area and the watershed. In 1910, the Wasatch Nursery began in Big Cottonwood Canyon, which today is now Spruce's campground. Here they grew millions of native conifer seedlings that were then planted in the surrounding areas for around 10 years. These trees make up a large portion of the forests we now enjoy today. Also, a few non-native trees can be found where the Wasatch Nursery used to be. Okay, okay, I'm sure some of you listeners are thinking, yo! What's with the history lesson, dog? I came here for badass search and rescue stories, yo. <laughs> we're getting there. I just thought first it was important to acknowledge the indigenous people that were native to this place for years before being pushed out by settlers. Also, I thought sharing this could give some listeners newfound respect and appreciation for this area next time they are climbing, skiing, or hiking in these canyons. Now, on to recreation. So where were we? The early 1900s. This is around the time that people started skiing for fun in the Wasatch. The Wasatch Mountain Club was established in 1912, which organized ski tours that explored the Wasatch Mountains. These trips would last a few days, and would mostly start in Park City, touring over Scotts Pass and into the Brighton area. This seemed like an interesting time in skiing. Here's a quote from Kay Smith, who was an early pioneer in Utah skiing, and would later run the Brighton Ski School for 20 years. I'm going to attempt to do a K. Smith voice, but I don't know what he sounded like. <laughs> going down Thanos Canyon was a hairy ride, because we really didn't know how to stop. We'd get up there at the top of Scott's Pass and give the first skier a head start, because you couldn't see him around the bend. We just hoped that he didn't fall, because you were right behind him. The wind was usually blowing snow across the ditch, and the ditch banks were about as high as our shoulders. So you just sat in there, and away you went. That was pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. A few years later, in the 1930s, the first rope toes were installed in the Brighton area, allowing faster uphill travel. Then in 1938, the first ski lift was installed at Alta, going up the face of Collins. In the years following, ski areas began to be established. Around the time that skiing was becoming popular, people began rock climbing in the Cottonwood Canyons. The earliest record of climbing activity in the area dates back to the 1930s. 
where Harold Goudreau put up a decent amount of first ascents in the Cottonwood Canyons. Goudreau was also a founding member of Alta Ski Patrol, skied and climbed all over the world, and taught outdoor adventure programming and environmental awareness education at the U. Let's go Utes. Yeah, Utes. A local climbing club by the name of the Albenbach Club established a lot of first ascents in Little Cottonwood Canyon in the 1960s, as well as some famous climbers of the time, such as Royal Robbins and Fred Becky. There are currently two routes in the Wasatch named after Harold Goudreau and Fred Becky today. Now let's jump forward back to the present. Today, recreation is thriving and more popular than ever. The Division of Natural Resources Outdoor Recreation Division Director shared that more people are recreating outdoors than ever before in Utah. A report from 2022 shares that the outdoor recreation economy in Utah grew 27.3% from 2020 to 2021, according to the BEA Outdoor Recreation Satellite Account. This is the largest recorded measure for Utah since the BEA started calculating the size of the outdoor recreation economy in 2012. So why are we seeing such an increase in recreation? Part of it could be due to all these online platforms promoting how great it is. These are five things you can do in Salt Lake City, Utah. Eat mustard adventures in Spots for beginners in Utah. I'm going to show you all the fun things you can do in Salt Lake City. It's one of our favorite things to do with our kids in southern Utah. I'll be talking about my visit to Momentum Climbing Mill Creek in Salt Lake If you're looking for something fun to do in Salt Lake City, check out me climbing outside in beautiful Moab, Utah. This could be why we've seen such a big increase of visitors at national parks in recent years. But I want to explore a bit more about what makes people want to come here in the first place. Why do people like to recreate? So I talked to a professor here at the U that teaches this kind of thing. My name is Nate Furman. I'm an associate professor of parks, recreation, and tourism, focusing on outdoor studies. Uh, and I direct the UXplore program. And so UXplore is the academic outdoor program where students, you know, they might enroll in backcountry yoga or sea kayaking like Powell. And I'm the person behind the scenes to make sure that everyone has permits and if there's problems that they get solved or not solved. Or, uh, but uh, I've been doing that since 2014. Um, and, uh, like I love my job. Um, I think I have the best job on campus. Nate grew up recreating in Northern California, spent years working for the National Outdoor Leadership Program in Lander, Wyoming, and has a PhD in parks, recreation, and tourism. So he thought he was the guy to talk to about why people recreate. There's multiple reasons that, uh, like in this case, people thrive in outdoor recreation activities. I think one that maybe isn't, isn't the first to come to people's mind is, is just the community that you can form doing outdoor recreation things and having shared passions with your friends. Um, like it can be really immersive and just a powerful way of connecting with, uh, with other human beings. Um, like the shared experiences of going for a rock climb or going for a ski or just going for a hike, you know, up in big Cottonwood Canyon or something like that time and space you have together um, is really special. Like, I think that, uh, like the conversations that you have while like hiking can be something where like, you're able to reveal more about yourself and who you are as a person. It's like the depthness and the richness of connection because of the time and because of the shared interest, like I think can, can be really, I don't know, uh, impactful for folks. The theme of community and the importance of community continues to come up on this show. It makes sense that shared experiences in the outdoors are a big part of why people love to recreate outside. Nate also explains seeing progression in these activities is a large part of why people enjoy them. 
sometimes, but not always. A lot of these activities are skill-based. And so there's like this progression of like you start out as a novice and then you learn a little bit more and you maybe get a little bit better and you can move on to intermediate. And while you're not like checking boxes, like, yes, I am an intermediate or whatever, like there's a natural progression through developing these skills in these different activity sets that I think it is pretty, I don't know, motivating or compelling for, for different folks. This next part I thought was interesting. Nate talked about the ways outdoor experiences you have stick with you. In terms of experience and what we what we mean when we're talking about experience, like the, the concept of experience has different like levels or stages of it. And two of the things that I think are really important are anticipation and, and nostalgia. So kind of like what we look forward to with an upcoming experience and then how we reflect on that experience in the past. And I think that, you know, whether it's going for a hike or, or whatever sort of outdoor recreation activity, there is this buildup of anticipation of, of looking forward to it. Maybe there's other emotions involved depending on what it is. You know, if it's skiing based stuff, maybe you're checking the weather and getting excited about how good or whatever the snow conditions are going to be. And then after the fact, like, these memories are so concrete that the nostalgia experience, like looking back and maybe we label it type two fun or type three fun or whatever, but kind of the reflecting on the experience can also be like, uh, I don't know, powerful and different than than many other types of, of recreation experiences or life experiences. Nate then related this concept of outdoor experiences to a river teeth and a river. David James Duncan wrote a book called River Teeth. Have you read it by chance? I have not. It's awesome. Um, and David James Duncan is way into like the concept of river and the ideas of rivers, but he has this one metaphor where he talks about river teeth and what a river tooth is, is, uh, like at one point, like a tree falls in a river and floats downstream and then it gets lodged somewhere. And as the water flows by it, it erodes like all the soft wood and all the soft wood just gets uh, yeah, moves downstream. And, but there are some places in the wood that's like really hardened by pitch. That's really resistant to water. And, um, and that's all that will remain after like many, many years and decades. And that idea of river teeth of being this like core, this hardened pitch of the experience. Like I think in the outdoors, we're able to create this, these river teeth for ourselves because it's like the most durable, strongest part of our memory that can be created through just meaningful experience in general, but in some cases outdoor recreation. So just to recap a bit, Nate talks about how these pieces of wood get lodged into parts of the river and over time as water erodes the wood, only the strongest core is left. Sometimes you can have fairly hardcore extreme experiences in the outdoors, whether it be a multi-day backpacking trip or a hard day out mountain biking. Whatever it may be, these experiences get to this core part of ourselves that make quite an impactful experience. Now that we've covered a little bit about why people love to get into outdoor recreation, I want to highlight how we can get into these types of activities. Because sometimes sports like rock climbing or skiing can seem daunting. There's a lot of gear and knowledge involved. But I think talking about ways these activities can be accessible is important because these experiences are beneficial for everybody. For students of the U, the U Explore program is a great place to start. And I'll let Nate talk a little bit more about what it is. We serve presently around 1,800 students a year on about 90 different classes, ranging from um, desert backpacking to uh, like mountain biking Zion to 
uh, rock climbing and avalanche education, um, stand-up paddleboarding. So our emphasis really is on uh, kind of nature-based human-powered recreation. I think that we're a really good entry point for people who are outdoor recreation curious and outdoor recreation committed. Um, most of our classes uh, are completely set up for beginners and novices. Like you don't have to come to our classes like having previous outdoor recreation experience. And I think that for folks that really don't have much outdoor experience and are, are interested, um, we provide an access point that can take you to all five national parks, that can take you to some of the hidden gems that are around the state that uh, like are seldomly visited for sure. Um, and it's really a great chance for people to connect with like what Utah is a, is as a state and uh, kind of like the, the overall context for how the University of Utah is situated. You Explore classes are great. The classes are centered around four learning outcomes developing skills in an activity, learning how to do it safely, learning about the conservation of these places and about public lands, since such a large part of where we recreate in Utah is on public lands, and then meeting other students. We want to develop teams of friends. And this is really important to me personally, because I think that, well, the Uni University of Utah is, is generally thought of as a commuter campus. And I think students often come here and don't have chance to form like strong, solid peer relationships. And what you explore does is, is I think, and I think we're really successful just not because we do anything special, but spending time in nature with other people, you tend to like become friends or you know, not always, but like, it's a really good place to, to kind of develop relationships that are meaningful and, and find future adventure partners. If you explore sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can find these classes under the class schedule. We're located on the, uh, course schedule, uh, same as any class that you would register for. Um, you can find us under PRTS, which is Parks, Recreation, and Tourism, snow-based courses, PRTSW, which is water, and PRTL, which is land. And so we just divide our courses up into those three different environments. Now, U Explorer is a great option for students currently enrolled at U. There are also a number of clubs with a focus on outdoor recreation, such as the Utah Free Skier Society, the Women's Outdoor Leadership Initiative, Backcountry Squatters, and many more. But what about those of you that aren't students at the U that are interested to learn more about the outdoor recreation that Utah has to offer? Here's Nate again. There are a number of opportunities. Um, the Wasatch Mountain Club, which has been in existence for over 100 years, um, they're an organization that serves local community um, of any age and has like many different uh, activities to offer from mountain biking to mountain climbing. And, uh, and they do a really good job at connecting people together and to have outdoor experiences. Uh, I think that um, there's OSHA lifelong learning here through the University of Utah, which serves non-students. And that's mostly for uh, people who are retired or of that age. Um, but it's a tremendous service for seniors. Um, there are a lot of continuing education classes that are open to the general public where they can enroll in a class uh, regarding outdoor recreation. Um, the internet, of course, is, has like lots of good information. Things like all trails uh, can, can give people itineraries for where and when to go to, to different locations. Nate also wants to emphasize that outdoor recreation doesn't have to mean crazy days backcountry skiing. You can have meaningful experiences in many places outside. There's natural places all around us. 
Um, and you don't have to have, like, you don't have to go up to the canyons to access them. Just the wonderful parks that Salt Lake County has um, and the Jordan River Trail uh, is amazing. One of my favorite places is just the West Desert because it, it really is the Wild West out there. Like, you can get in your car and do an auto tour and see wild horses from the side of the road. Um, really connect with this massive landscape that has incredible historical significance. But for those of you that are interested in pursuing goals of snow-capped mountains, there are a lot of local resources for learning how to responsibly navigate the mountains. And with such amazing access to great backcountry terrain here in Salt Lake, we wanted to explore how somebody could begin to get into these activities. So we talked with Francine Mullen, who works for the Utah Avalanche Center, about the accessible resources there are for education on recreating in avalanche terrain. First, with like on snow education, we do have, we offer three different types of on snow education classes. Um, the first being our four hour rescue class. So it's four hours on like a Tuesday or Wednesday, and you go and do uh, rescue practice basically, learn how to use your transceiver, learn how to strategically shovel, learn how to probe. And we focus just on single burials. Um, and then we offer a 10-hour, it's about 10-hour, Backcountry 101. So it's a two-hour classroom session with an eight-hour field day. Um, that's kind of your teaser up to a recreational level one. Um, oftentimes, I think people come into their level one, which is that traditional, like, two field days, kind of feeling like they're getting fed from the fire hose. And um, this, <laughs> the Backcountry 101 was created just to bridge that gap, basically. Okay. So when you go into your level one, you know, you've heard the term faceting. At least you've like put skins on and have walked around just to try and make that experience in your level one a little bit more. There are a lot of avalanche level one classes being offered in the Wasatch, but the Backcountry 101 classes that the Utah Avalanche Center offers provides more basic information and experiences so people feel more prepared going into an avalanche level one class. The Utah Avalanche Center has other great resources for avalanche education. Programs we're really proud of is um, our Know Before You Go program, which is a program that brings presentations uh, to schools, groups like student groups. We've done them, you know, around the university for ski clubs or snowboard clubs, snowmobile clubs, um, and it's a free one-hour presentation. It's just avalanche awareness. So we go over like what is an avalanche, and it's that teaser up to like a non-snow course. Um, and then part of that program is kind of its own thing, which is our e-learning. So now before you go e-learning, and it's 10 hours of free online learning, um, which is fantastic. A lot of these courses provided by the Utah Avalanche Center are accessible and low cost. And with a sport like backcountry skiing, it's so important to make sure you are taking these classes to keep yourself safe in the backcountry. Becoming familiar with skiing somewhere like a resort is a great first step before going into avalanche terrain. Then taking your time with learning the necessary skills is very important. Avalanche education is very much so a lifelong journey, and I think you have to give it space to be that and to really, you know, take in what's going on. Like, after your level one, you're not going to know everything all of a sudden. It, it takes years of just time, and so... Like once you get to that point, I think just giving yourself time and being patient with yourself as you are learning a new sport. Because as we were talking about, snowpack and each, <laughs> each year is, is ever changing and it's pretty complex. And I think it's really important to give space to those complex things.
Okay, lovely listeners. And Cambria, who's been lingering here all along. I have. <laughs> Let's do a little debrief. So far in the episode, we've discussed a little bit about Salt Lake's history of recreation, why people love to recreate, and how you can access experiences to recreation. Now, I wanted to shift gears and talk about the inherent dangers of recreation. And if more people coming here to recreate has led to more serious injuries and rescues. So we talked with Sean Roundy, who works for Utah County Search and Rescue, for some insight into this. I'm Sean Roundy. I've been a search and rescue team member here in Utah County volunteer for 23 years next week. With 23 years of experience, Sean was great to talk to you about the dangers of recreating and what you can do to be smart about it. He got into search and rescue originally because he loved to recreate and his dad was on the Cache County search and rescue team. Here's Sean again. And immediately you discover that all the things you love to do, climb, ski, hike, mountain bike, whatever, it becomes multiple times more rewarding when there's some little kid out there lost or when there's somebody with broken bones and, you know, they're going to die if you don't find them and take care of them. And then you pile on top of that as well, this excellent team where we're trained well and we're ready and we have experience and we, every once in a while there may be some personality conflicts, but during a mission that almost always goes away because the unifying purpose, like the reason we're there, we all know where that is. We're going to, relieve somebody's suffering, we're gonna save somebody's life, or we're gonna find someone and bring them home and at least give closure for family in the more unfortunate incidents. First, let's talk about how search and rescue works. If you call 911 and are somewhere where search and rescue is needed, the sheriff department will send a search and rescue team to your location. Search and rescue is entirely volunteer-based, so most of the time a rescue is free of charge. Because we've had a few rescues where people would have died without our help, and they didn't call us because they thought they'd be hit with the multi-thousand dollar bill. I remember one night there was a jet ski that had sunk several miles out in Utah Lake. And so when they were overdue, someone called us and we ran our big search patterns and we found them. And, and the jet ski, of course, was nowhere to be seen, but here was this couple swimming toward shore about 30 feet apart. And as our first boat slowed down in the water and somebody reached out to help the woman into the boat, the guy shouts, don't touch her. Oh, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> you know, of course, we we assumed she wasn't like a zombie or had some terrible disease or something. <laughs> so we helped her into the boat. And then his next question was, how much is this gonna cost me? <laughs> I'm like, hey, we're volunteers. We're not gonna cost charge you a penny. Things like an ambulance or life flight can be charged to your insurance. But if you're in a position where search and rescue is needed, don't hesitate to call. I was curious when researching this episode if rescues have increased since more people have begun to recreate in Utah. And I found the answer quite interesting. There was one moment that stood out for everybody across the whole country, and that was COVID. Suddenly, you can't go to the movie theater, you can't go anywhere, and so people head outside. And so what we saw that year, that first year, was a lot of people went places. They had no experience. And experience, of course, is what you get when you don't have experience. And so they didn't always have uh, great judgment. 
the first one of these I remember was somebody who climbed up, hiked up the little Baldy up here, just above my home here. And it's 7,000 something feet. And on the south face, it was pretty dry. And they went over and then they decided to go down into Dry Canyon. And now they're in four or five feet of snow. They're up to their waist. They're wearing cotton clothing. Do not wear cotton in the winter or anywhere you're going to get wet and cold because it, it sucks the body, the heat off your body. And we call it killer cloth. Anyway, so they were trudging through the snow and decided to keep going until they had nothing left. They were out of food, they were out of water, they could not even move. So we headed up there, three of us headed up on motorcycles to try and get there a little sooner. Uh, we found them, we got them sitting on something, you know, off the wet snow, off the cold snow. We gave them some food. That is the best way to warm up is get some calories in you. It's not even hot chocolate, just sugar, whatever calories you can get. Uh, got them hydrated and sat with them for about 10 minutes and then they, their strengths began to come back. So we didn't have to carry them out and we wow. were able to just walk them back down the trail. But that year we had 171 or five rescues. So almost doubled how busy we were. And we were wondering, we were really curious to see if that trend would continue. The next year, we I, I don't remember for sure, maybe I'm just 120. And it's been kind of back in our normal range since then. So even though there is a lot more recreation, I, a couple of things that have helped is a lot of the times it's in areas, it's in popular trails where a lot of other people go. And a lot of those people who go are prepared. So like we mentioned earlier in the episode, accessing the resources available to you to learn how to recreate responsibly is key. Also being prepared is a big part of going out to recreate. Bring a headlamp, bring warm clothing, that kind of thing. Even though Search and Rescue have a great team, you don't wanna be in the position to call them. Another key part of recreating safely is being able to slow down to assess your surroundings and your judgment. And then the last thing I'll say to answer that question is if you get up there and it's this beautiful, bluebird day and it just snowed three to six feet and it is perfect and you are feeling so good slow down because that feeling really good screws with it messes with your judgment and you feel like ah nothing bad can happen and people die because of that i know i've seen multiple people dead because it was this beautiful day and they knew they shouldn't have gone there but they went there anyway and that was it that was the last ride of their lives. Wow. Don't do that. Sean has been on many rescues where the death or injury could have been prevented if they were more prepared or had better judgment. So even though there are so many great experiences you can have recreating outside, it's important to take these sports seriously. Let me just put in a plug. Y'all be careful. Stay safe out there. Don't take crazy chances because sometimes it's going to go your way and you're going to get a million hits on your YouTube channel. Yay. Sometimes you're going to, it's not, you're going to die. You're going to break yourself up. One of the main things is to focus on being safe. Knowing your tolerance to risk is an important skill to have in the outdoors and not taking any chances that could seriously put your life in danger is one of the main ways to stay safe while recreating. Now in Sean's 23 years of experience working with search and rescue, he's accumulated lots of crazy stories to tell and I want to share a few in this episode. Here's a few that I thought were quite funny. First one's not so funny, but a little bit. So there was this race, this major adventure race going through the county, and this biker slipped and uh, dislocated his shoulder and, and did some pretty serious damage to his shoulder. So we went to get him, and, and on the way up, 
I heard, you know, on the radio, they were talking to somebody had a radio up there. Maybe it was a FRS radio. And some other uh, racers had stopped. Like, this is so cool. Stopped to help this guy. Like, they were near the front of the pack. At least the first guy was. He was probably five back from the, from the front. He was pushing it. I know him personally now. Um, and they, they stopped to help him, you know, and, and they pulled out the radio and they said, hey, I have a flare. And our guy on the radio said, okay, shoot that down canyon. And I thought, oh, that's going to be trouble. <laughs> and sure enough, rather than popping it up into the sky toward the west, he aimed it down canyon, down canyon and pulled a little chain on the end. And I shot this fireball down into a stand of dry pines. Oh, gosh. And I thought, oh, now we're really going to be tested if this thing lights up and suddenly mounts on fire. And <laughs> but luckily it then plopped into the whole stream and uh, extinguish itself, so. Here's another slightly amusing search and rescue story. Another favorite is there was a boat on the lake one Sunday night and their motor went out, wouldn't engage the drive. And so they, so we were responding, we had our search teams out, you know, in the general direction and the guy would call in every once in a while and I'd hear Tom, our, our sergeant, our, our sheriff guy on the phone with him He's like, okay, okay, thanks, okay, bye. Hangs up the phone. He's like, turns to us. He says, they're directly under the moon. <laughs> and he calls back another, and you pick up the phone. He's like, okay, I see three planes. Which one are you under? All right, all right, thanks. Turns off, turns off the phone. He's like, they're under the first one. Like, which one is that? Uh, he just turned his phone off. At that point, he's like, we'll just find them. Not all rescue stories are as funny. This next story involves some descriptions of major injuries that can be hard to listen to. Just as a quick content warning. One night, there was a kid. This is one of my favorite rescues because it was hard and it took all night and we made it happen. He would he had hiked up past Upper Falls in Provo Canyon. And he was about six waterfalls up this drainage. And then he fell off the 50-foot cliff. He landed on his face. And at 50-foot fall, like a, it's about a 50% survival rate. So... We're really happy this guy's alive, busted his face all up. Maybe that's a good place to land on. I picked up multiple people who fell 50 feet on the face and lived because all those sutures can crack and absorb some shock like your helmet, maybe. Anyway, his face was all black and blue, and we're like, let's get him out of here. It was too dark for a hoist because back then they wouldn't hoist at night. They hadn't yet been certified for that. And so we're like, let's get him out of here. We lowered him over six waterfalls, took all night, stuck him in an ambulance just as dawn was beginning to light the sky. Um, but on the, on the first waterfall, actually it was just a, not really a waterfall, it was just a steep thing with the river flowing down next to us. We were going down and we had about six attendants on the litter with a rope lowering us slowly down and, and we were holding it. And, and as we went along, the people in the back would say, would say, okay, there's a log coming up in your right, watch out. And, and okay, thanks, good, got it, you know, and it was just a smooth operation. And we got down to the next station where they had teammates who had tied onto another anchor and were ready to clip them into their new rope and lower them down. And I said, guys, that could not have gone any smoother. Great job. And from in our little muffled bundle where we had them all packaged up and sheltered from the water and the cold and all, we, <laughs> we heard this a muffled voice say, I love you guys. <laughs> and that was the first time it occurred to me, like, how, how scary would that be to be like jostling around in the dark, totally strapped and he can't move. 
and then to hear people just calmly talking and like, okay, good job. Thanks, Snoop. How, you know, and that's going to affect your medical outcomes too, to lower your blood pressure a little bit. If you want to read more about search and rescue stories like this one, Sean has a book called 75 Search and Rescue Stories, which can be found on Amazon. Listeners, I hope as we've navigated through stories of rivers, mountains, and waterfalls, you found some motivation to either continue recreating in this amazing place, or it's piqued your interest to go out and find some new areas to explore. Has this, has listening to these guys helped you, it piqued your interest in exploring more? It has. I think the search and rescue stories were kind of a wake-up call to how both beautiful and dangerous the outdoors are, Mm -hmm. and if you are going to get into these activities to, you know, be smart about it, mm-hmm. which I think for the most part I am, but, you know, you can get caught in really good days outside where your judgment does kind of go out the window, so I think that's really important. And I also thought that all the opportunities we have living in Salt Lake is amazing. Yeah, I really liked what you were talking about, like knowing your risk tolerance. Yeah, because that's different for everyone. Like some people can, or like, oh, like their their degree of like, oh yeah, I can make this jump is different for everyone. Oh know? yeah, or just like as an example. So I think that's that's great. Yeah, when I went to scout camp growing up, there was this kid named Rhett that would jump over cliffs. Oh, let me set the scenery. Okay, so a cliff. He could run and jump from one rock ledge over like a five foot cavern. Sure another rock ledge so he knew his risk tolerance mm-hmm. I don't jump over caverns still don't okay so yeah because you know your risk tolerance <laughs> I know my risk tolerance <laughs> yeah but sometimes you know when you're going out with like a new group of people that have been doing I don't know mountain biking or something for years and know like their risk tolerance and the trails that are good for them you can get kind of caught up with the crowd and then suddenly you have a broken leg and you gotta call Sean, yeah. you know? You gotta call Sean and you gotta- <laughs> And he would come and he would make you laugh, but- He will make you laugh and he'll, he'll make everything better, but you know, you, you wanna avoid those situations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I think it's great. I mean, I go camping with my family all the time. Like we're, we're, we're campers. I don't do like lots of like hiking or like hardcore biking or skiing even. That's fair. But we do like to go in the outdoors and I think people who haven't camped before should at least do it once. Yeah. Because I think it's a really fun time to be out in the wilderness, you know? And, I think so too. Yeah, and like learning how to do it safely is really important, and also the community. That's always that we that's always what we come back to is the community is the best part. Yeah. M- meet people, learn to assess your risk tolerance, make friends, do backflips together off the rocks. <laughs> you know. If that's in your risk tolerance. If that's in your risk tolerance, don't do backflip off of rocks safely. Yes. People. Um, and then again, I just want to thank those that we interviewed for this episode: Nate Furman at the U. Francie Mullen from Utah Avalanche Center and Sean Roundy from Utah County Search and Rescue. Also, thanks, Cambria. You're so welcome. Our wonderful producer for editing and helping put these shows together. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) We love to have you. (laughs) It's great to be here. Uh, And for the Daily Tech Chronicle. So thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Can of Worms.